A Senate agreement on Ukraine military aid and immigration reform at the U.S.-Mexico border is released, but will lawmakers be able to get the bill across the finish line? Produced by Defense News and Military Times, this is the Early Bird Brief. Each morning, we bring you the defense and national security news of the day. And Afghan allies are included in a long-awaited Senate bill covering the gamut of national security issues. What does this all mean for our defense and security? You'll find out. I'm your host, Simone Perez. Today is Tuesday, February 6, 2024. First up, the Senate released a negotiated bill that would provide military aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, but it also pushes some of the biggest immigration reforms in a generation. Capitol Hill reporter Bryant Harris joins the episode today. So Bryant, thanks for joining us. What are the big national security items in this finalized version of the legislation? Yes, this is a 118 billion dollar foreign aid spending bill that runs the gamut from Ukraine to Israel to Taiwan to AUKUS. A lot of it does get reinvested in the U.S. defense industrial base. The majority of the package goes to Ukraine at 60 billion for both security and economic aid to Ukraine. Of that, uh, the hard security amount is $48.4 billion for Ukraine. You know, that includes money for the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, uh, nearly $20 billion to backfill weapons sent to Ukraine from U.S. stockpiles, which is the primary way that the U.S. has been supporting Kyiv since Russia's invasion. And then the next largest amount would go to Israel. So that's $10.6 billion for the Defense Department to continue arming Israel, uh, including $4 billion for air defense systems like Iron Dome, David Sling, Iron Beam. Uh, and then on top of that, there's uh, foreign military financing grants for Ukraine, Israel, and the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and they beefed up Taiwan aid a little bit, um, but that's still the smallest part of the package for the three countries. So you have $2 billion in foreign military financing for Indo-Pacific partners, including Taiwan, and another $2 billion for the Pentagon to replenish equipment to send to Taiwan from U.S. stockpiles, the same way they've been doing for Ukraine. And then they've added uh, about $2.4 billion for uh, CENTCOM, which oversees U.S. forces in the Middle East, uh, basically because of all the increased attacks from Iran-backed proxies on U.S. forces in Iraq, Syria, and now Yemen. And you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're using systems like tomahawks to respond to the Houthi attacks in Yemen's in Yemen, which is you know much more expensive than the drones and the missiles the Houthis are using to attack ships in the Red Sea, and then there's also money for the unfunded priorities list for Indo-Pacific Command, and there's about two billion dollars for the submarine industrial base to meet Navy submarine requirements and prepare for the AUKUS agreement. And has the bill met any stiff resistance? Yeah, it's very complicated and it's looking increasingly unlikely that this bill will pass Congress. To start with, a lot of it centers around Republican opposition to Ukraine aid, as I and others have covered extensively 
you know, since 2022, there's been more and more Republican opposition to spending this large amount of money to support Ukraine against Russia's invasion. But now there are several other elements to this too, both foreign policy-wise and domestic. For starters, Senate Republicans, including those who who say they support Ukraine aid, stalled a procedural vote on this bill in December. And this led to two months of negotiations on immigration policy restrictions that the latest aid package includes. But now that those negotiations are done, most Republicans, including, you know, defense hawks who say they support Ukraine aid, are lambasting it, uh, the immigration restrictions, as not far enough. And then on the opposite side of that, because of these immigration policy changes, you have uh, Democrats as well who are coming out against it. You know, this is all in the context of you've already lost Republican votes, uh, some Democratic votes over immigration. And now on top of that, you may have a challenge with progressives because of the Israel aid component of this, given the humanitarian catastrophe we've seen in Gaza and the high civilian casualty rates. So, you know, you had um, Senator Sanders saying he'll vote against it because of the Israel issue. And, you know, there may be a few more joining him. So the the more votes you lose for any given issue, Ukraine, immigration or Israel, the higher threshold you have to get to 60 votes in the Senate. And on top of that, House Speaker Mike Johnson, as soon as the text came out last night, he declared it dead on arrival in the House. You, you know, like others, he's saying that the immigration policy changes are unsatisfactory and it's unclear he'll he'll put any Ukraine aid on the floor. What he's decided to do later this week is have another standalone vote on an Israel aid package um, that's just assistance for Israel. So, you know, I think there is somewhat of an understanding that that package would likely pass Congress, but there's an open question about what to do about Ukraine, Taiwan, AUKUS, all the other stuff that's in this bill. Another important story, after years of legislation languishing on Capitol Hill, Afghan allies who helped the U.S. in its 20-year war may get the help they've been asking for. Capitol Hill Bureau Chief Leo Shane III breaks down how major parts of the Afghan Adjustment Act made it into the final version of the supplemental deal on border security and Ukraine aid. So, Leo, the supplemental from the Senate, with a lot of provisions on things like Ukraine aid, border security, asylum law, and Israel military aid, also has a provision about Afghan allies that helped the U.S. fight the war in Afghanistan. What's in the legislation about that? Yeah, look, this sort of got thrown in with all the other things you mentioned. There's Ukraine aid, there's there's aid for Israel, uh, there's a bunch of border security provisions, but then major provisions of the Afghan uh, Adjustment Act um, got included in this. This has been the bill that has been floating around for the last uh, two plus years since the U.S. left Afghanistan uh, officially in uh, August 2021. There have been a lot of advocates who have said that the immigration process for Afghan allies, for folks that helped uh, the U.S. military during that war during the conflict just aren't aren't good enough, just aren't enough, just aren't working quick enough. There's 150,000 individuals, some who helped, some who are rel- close relatives of those who helped, but all who are stuck in limbo at this point, lo- locked in various places, a lot left in Afghanistan, but some caught in other countries who want to come to the United States, who want to get to a, a safe area. Um, veterans groups have been lobbying for this for years, but it's something that just keeps getting caught up in the politics up on Capitol Hill. So to include it in here is a, a pretty significant move because the 
this includes a lot of uh, important things. If uh, if lawmakers can figure out a way to get aid for Ukraine and aid for Israel, maybe they can find a way to finally solve this Afghan ally problem that's been floating around. And the big thing we all want to know is, can it really pass? What's the political environment looking like now on the Hill regarding passing this bill? Yeah, and that is the key question here. Um, look, we don't even know if it's going to make it out of the Senate. Senator Schumer came out this week and said he's going to put it up for a vote as early as Wednesday. There are some Republican supporters, but there are a bunch of Republican detractors in the Senate. Um, and even if it does pass the Senate, um, House Speaker Mike Johnson has already said it's dead on arrival in the House, that he doesn't have any plans. Um, White House is pushing for this strongly. There's a chance that they can change some minds. But this looks like yet another case where the Afghan allies are just going to get caught up in the politics of the Hill and uh, not see any meaningful reforms put in place. Also on your radar for today, in case you missed it, the Navy took out 11 anti-ship cruise missiles belonging to Iranian-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen over the weekend. And the U.S. conducted joint strikes on multiple Houthi positions. U.S. Central Command said that U.S. forces struck five anti-ship missiles ready to launch against ships in the Red Sea in an act of self-defense on Sunday, after taking out six missiles on Saturday. U.S. and U.K. forces on Saturday conducted strikes against 36 Houthi targets at 13 locations in Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. The Navy destroyer Laboon and F.A. 18 Super Hornet fighter jets shot down seven Houthi drones over the Red Sea on Friday. Four Houthi drones were also struck down on Friday. Additionally, the U.S. military launched an air assault on dozens of sites in Iraq and Syria used by Iranian-backed militias and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Quds forces Friday. The retaliatory strikes followed a fatal drone attack that killed three American soldiers at a base in Jordan last month. Here's why it matters. The pace of retaliatory strikes have increased and seem likely to continue. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan warned of more retaliatory strikes in various interviews over the weekend. And now, here are some other stories that we're hearing chirps about. The U.S.-backed, Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces said yesterday a drone attack hit a training ground in eastern Syria on Sunday. No casualties were reported among U.S. troops, but the attack on a base housing U.S. troops killed six allied Kurdish fighters. German Defense Minister Boris Pistorius said yesterday that Germany will double its contribution of about 100 troops to the NATO-led peacekeepers in Kosovo. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Saudi Arabia yesterday. It's his fifth visit to the region since the outbreak of the war in Gaza. He's hoping to press ahead with a potential ceasefire deal and post-war planning while tamping down regional tensions. And yesterday, a new leader assumed command of North American Aerospace Defense Command and U.S. Northern Command. And on this day in history, in 1985, President Ronald Reagan defined some of the key concepts of his foreign policy in what came to be known as the Reagan Doctrine. The doctrine served as the foundation of the government's intent to support freedom fighters battling communism throughout the world. That's it for us this morning. To get more top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com ebb to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, or comment wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to follow us on social media at defense underscore news and at military times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted and produced by me, Zimone Z. Perez. Today's episode featured stories by Brian Harris, Leo Shane III, and Diana Stancy. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Bruce. Have a great day. 